0: Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. If you're interested in more information about our church, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're gonna go to Philippians chapter number two. Philippians chapter number two. And if uh, you're just joining with us, uh, we've been uh, going through Uh, the book of Philippians here. And uh, one of the few of the themes that we find uh, throughout the book of Philippians is not only the fact of having joy, uh, but also we see another theme that runs throughout the book of Philippians, and that is the the theme of unity. And it's it's interesting to note that uh, from the very beginning of this letter, uh, Paul has been promoting both by not only example, but also in his words, the fact of stressing unity among the body of believers uh, here at Philippi. And he writes, that, writes to them that he wants the church to cultivate humility amongst themselves. And that is what brings about unity is when we actually live in humility, uh, recognizing that um, We need to be having a a lower view of ourselves than sometimes that we uh, promote. And, um, you know, we can see this theme throughout uh, scripture here. Uh, We see it in his thanksgiving and his prayers. He talks about in Philippians 1, uh, 3 through 11. He focuses on the church as a whole. His aim is for their love and their unity Um, He thanks all of them for their participation in the gospel and assures them of his deep love for all the believers, as he mentions in uh, verses three through eight. And uh, his prayer, as we looked at in depth, uh, verses nine through 11, is concerned with the issue of promoting humility and unity. And as we covered also in uh, verses 12 through 26, Paul tells us about all of the circumstances that happened in his life and uh, how he's responding to all of those difficulties that uh, he was faced with. And when he describes all of those circumstances and his joy, his life really becomes a model for us to see how Paul actually lived out humility uh, in his life and in return uh, was promoting unity. Unity. And, you know, you think about all the things that Paul went through as a a believer as he was uh, suffering uh, divisions and he was suffering uh, problems uh, with other believers trying to cause him harm. Uh, Paul, the way that he responds to that uh, was through humility. And so as he models all this for them, uh, he he gives us a great example of humility. And that brings us here to this uh, passage now here in uh, Philippians chapter number 2. And he's urging them to live lives of humility and unity. As we covered uh, last week, uh, he talked about the thing of never, never doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, which we looked at as the idea of uh, selfish ambition is, is what uh, scripture tells us is devilish. It is, uh, is demonic. And uh, the believer in Christ is not supposed to be living that way. And uh, this passage we're gonna look at here today is, is probably one of the most important passages doctrinally and uh, that not only teaches us and establishes us for us about who Christ is and what he has done, um, but uh, practically it teaches us about what true humility looks like. And Paul really gives us this, this awesome example of humility. He really sets the bar. Uh, really high as uh, to what humility really looks like. So today, this is what I'd like for you to take away with you. Remember Christ and his example of humility to promote unity within the church family. Remember Christ and his example of humility to promote unity within the church family. Let's take a look here at our uh, passage of scripture here today. Beginning verse number five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if we're going to be promoting unity within the body of Christ, the first thing that we have to understand is promote unity by knowing what Christ did. Now, all of us here, surely, we've uh, most of us have grown up in church, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, Maybe you've had some Sunday school background. And I think all of us would say, yeah, we know what Christ did. one thing that I find throughout all of scripture is how many times it has to remind us what Christ did. Why? Because we forget. We forget what Christ did. We forget what he suffered. No wonder why we take communion to do this in remembrance of me. It's a constant reminder of what Christ did. And so who is Jesus Christ? You know, this is really a fundamental question that must be asked. Religions the world over have their own ideas of of who Jesus is. Some cults teach that Jesus is a God or an angel or one of God's creations. Others teach that Jesus was just a human being and uh, not divine. And I'll say this, any religion, I, I don't care how sincere they are, how loving they are, how religious they are, If they do not hold to the essential truth that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he is God, that religion is false, and uh, they teach a different Jesus that cannot save. So it's absolutely necessary that we understand that scripture declares about who Jesus is. Now remember what Paul here is talking about. He's talking about here within the context about having unity and having humility. And uh, he's asking that we complete his joy is what he said in verse number two, complete my joy by uh, having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one of one mind. And so he wants us to learn how to promote unity amongst ourselves. And he is giving this example of who Christ is and what he has done to help us grasp what that unity is and humility is by understanding who Christ is and what he has done. So what did Christ do? What did Christ do? Well, Jesus Christ voluntarily left the highest position in the universe and went to the very lowest position on earth in order to redeem us and rescue us from God's judgment when we did not deserve it. You see, there's no other greater example of humility than that of what Jesus did on our behalf. If we ever find ourselves where we have been growing cold toward God, think of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has accomplished for us. And hopefully that would warm our hearts towards Christ, towards the gospel. When we think of who Jesus is, the fact that he left the splendor and the purity of heaven and he came to this wicked world to be made sin on our behalf, it should fill our hearts with love and devotion and make us realize that there is no personal sacrifice we make, no humiliation we go through can ever match what our glorious Savior did for us. Now let's look specifically at some things here concerning Christ of who he is and what he did and how this helps us with fulfilling the command here in verse number five is what Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. He wants you to think this way. He wants you to have this same type of mindset. So how do we actually fulfill this? Well, look at some of the things that Jesus did and who he is. Number one, Jesus is fully God. I want you to take notice of the phrase here in verse number six, look what he says, who though he was in the form of God. What Paul is talking about here is Christ's deity, that Jesus is God and his preexistence that Christ did not begin at Bethlehem. Jesus has always existed. He existed one with the father, one with with the Holy Spirit, He's always existed. He did not begin in Bethlehem. He's always been. And so Paul is trying to teach us something about who Jesus is. He was in the form of God and he existed in the form of God. What does that mean? Jesus is not a created being as some cults teach, but rather he is the second person of the triune God. As John declares in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. A few verses later, John would declare in uh, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. glorious only begotten from the Father, full of grace and of truth. Jesus said to the Jews who challenged his claims, he said, before Abraham was born, I am, John eight fifty eight. When Paul states that Jesus existed in the form of God, form refers to that which is intrinsic and essential to the being of God, that is to God's attributes. Paul is saying that Jesus in his pre-existence shared the essential attributes of deity. He is God. Make no mistake about that. Before he came to this earth, Jesus dwelled in the indescribable glory and perfection of heaven, one with the Father and the Spirit. Notice what else he says here about who Jesus is. Jesus, who is God, took on the form of a servant. Look here, 6 and 7. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And there's a couple phrases here that teaches us something about the humiliation of Christ. Notice the latter part of verse six. What does that mean? Look what he says there. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. As so we continue reading here in this passage, we see that Christ, who was God, left heaven and took on the form of a servant. Christ, who was God in the flesh, did not hold on to or grasp onto or hold closely his divine privileges as to protect it. Jesus was not grasping to get something. But he already possessed deity, and because he did so, he could freely then give or empty himself. He did not regard being equal with God. Something to be used for his own advantage. Look at verse number seven is what he says here. It says that he emptied himself. What does that mean? He emptied himself. Is Paul saying that Jesus quit being God? By no means. This is why context is so important. This is why it's so important to know what the scriptures do teach. Because if we're not careful, we could look at that and we could start running with all kinds of ideas and saying, oh, well, Jesus quit being God there. Is that what Paul is saying? That Jesus quit being God, that he emptied himself? Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes, but rather his glory was veiled. We see this clearly as when Jesus uh, said he brought uh, Peter, James, and John up in the mount there. And it says that he was transfigured before them. His glory was revealed of who he was. You know, all of us veil our flesh in some way, don't we? We put clothes on every morning, Right? Well, think about this. Here's Christ, who is God. He came to the earth and he veiled his glory. He covered it up. He emptied himself. He veiled it. Paul explains for us how Christ emptied himself in the rest of the verses seven and eight. Look what he says here. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's that word there, form again being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. There it is again. So he took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men in human form. And when Paul says that Jesus took on the form of a servant, he means that he voluntarily adopted the very nature of a servant. Other translations you might have might read slave. So he did not cease to be God in any sense but added to his divine nature, a true human nature. Jesus' human nature was exactly like ours, yet without sin. He grew weary, he hungered, he slept, he cried, he grieved. Everything that we experience in life, Christ experienced yet without sin. That's why Hebrews teaches us that he's a, he's a high priest, a, one that knows how to sympathize with us. Jesus wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. His body was subject to the results of the fall. And that's why Paul says here in verse number eight, found in human form. He means that if you had looked at Jesus, you would not have thought there's a superman or a or a god, but rather there's a normal-looking man. In fact, in uh, uh, the Psalms, it tells us that uh, there was nothing desirous about him. Looked just like a normal human being. I'm sorry, he didn't have golden hair with blue eyes and angelic, you know. Ha! Ah, all right, that's not what Scripture teaches. He was born into a family. As a baby, he grew to maturity as we all do and in every other observable way was completely human. To deny either the full and perfect deity of our Lord or his complete humanity is to veer into serious heresy. So what Paul is showing us is that the Lord Jesus went from the highest place in the universe as eternal God to take on human existence and that not as a king or a powerful warrior, but as a lowly servant. Isn't that what Romans says? He who was rich became what? Poor for us. Look at this third thing here about who, what Christ did. Jesus, who is God, humbled himself by dying on a cross and this is really the heart of the message, the gospel message. Paul goes on to say that Jesus humbled himself. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice how many times Paul uses the word death there. Really stresses the point of it, does he not? He says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, And so that tells us something about the magnitude of his humility. It is measured by the extent to which he was obedient all the way to death. Christ was that obedient to the Father all the way to the point of death. Take note of that word obedient there. It means to adhere or to follow the desires of another. In this case, God the Son followed the desires of the Father. Jesus always did what pleased his Father is what scripture teaches us. And we learn about in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying there. He knew what was going to be coming. He knew what was going to happen. And yet he prayed, yet not my will, but your will be done. Notice the type of death that Christ died by. Look what it says here. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death by crucifixion was considered to be reserved only for criminals, those who were slaves, thieves, killers, and outright enemies of the state. Crucifixion was a heinous way to die. Death on a cross was slow, it was a very slow process, sometimes after several days. That's why we read in scripture where it says that the soldiers would come by and they would break the legs of those whom they were crucifying to hasten the, the dying process. And almost in a way, it was almost a, a, an act of mercy or kindness to break the legs of those individuals. Crucifixion was death through asphyxiation. Basically, when somebody was placed upon a cross, so they were gonna die on a cross, uh, their, their wrists and their feet were impaled with a spike of some sort. And they would, uh, the Romans were really the ones that really uh, brought cruci- crucifixion to a, to a heightened sense. I mean, they, they became really, really good at it. And sometimes what they would do is they would take the legs of the individual and they would bend them ever so slightly... And so when you're on the cross there, your arms are stretched out and you're hanging. The weight of your body is hanging and you cannot get enough breath. And so what the individual would do is they would push up on that spike that is in their, in their feet to get a breath and then they would slump back down. And this would go on for a long, long time until their muscles would give out, their lungs would fill up, and they could no longer breathe. And so the person that was usually sometimes crucified, uh, they would crucify them naked in open shame. Think about the humiliation of what Christ went through. There he is on the cross, naked, dying. Dying. Often as a further disgrace, the person was denied burial and the dead body was left on the cross for the birds to eat or to rot. This was not anything pretty. You see, we will never begin to know what glory he gave up or what humiliation he suffered on our behalf until we are with him in glory. But to grow in humility, we must think about what the staggering implications were for Christ. That he, Christ, left all of that, came to earth, humiliated himself, became a servant, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The fact that the holy, glorious, eternal Son of God took on human flesh, and not the flesh of a king, but of a servant, and stooping even lower, he willingly and obediently went to the cross For our sins, our guilt, our shame. Every disgusting thing that we've ever committed in our lives. Christ did that for us. So in order for us to promote unity, we must know what Christ did. Notice the second thing here. Promote unity by having this same mind. That's what Paul says here. Have this mind among yourselves. If you want to have unity, if you want to have a unity within the body of Christ, have unity within your relationships, have unity in your marriage, remember what Christ did. That's what he says. Have this same mind. You know, in our day, uh, humility is hardly ever emphasized as something that as believers in Christ we should be pursuing after. Sad to say, uh, many churches today promote and pursue just the opposite, and that is of self-love. Uh, this whole idea of self-esteem. Scripture is replete with the call to humility, and that is exactly what the scripture here in Philippians is stressing. So what do we learn from Christ's humility? How does Christ's humility help us develop and have unity amongst ourselves? Well, here's just a few things. Number one, true humility is a proper attitude towards self that results in proper actions, towards others. Look what he says here. Have this mind among yourselves. Jesus Christ could have rightly thought to himself, I'm the eternal God. I'm not about to become a human being, let alone be a servant, let alone die for some miserable wretch like those people. Glad he didn't think that, right? He lowered himself, became obedient to death. You know, who are we? Who are we? According to scripture, we are rebellious sinners at heart. We have gone our own way and despised the very God who created us. But by his undeserved favor, we have become his children through faith in Christ. By grace, he has forgiven us all of our sins and made us members of Christ's body. He has entrusted spiritual gifts to us to use for his kingdom and his glory, not our own kingdom and glory. And as a result, we have the great privilege now of serving others for Jesus' sake. So who are we? We are nothing without Christ. Nothing. Secondly, true humility means renouncing self for the sake of others. Jesus had to renounce any self-will when he came to the earth and he went to the cross. Humility means dying to self daily so that we can do God's will. Is that not what Jesus taught, taught us? Take up your cross and die. Come and follow me, take up your cross and die. Is that the message that we hear today that's being promoted? No, it is save yourself, promote yourself, do everything you can for yourself. But Jesus says, no. Come, die with me. Take up your cross and die. That's what we have to do. Thirdly, true humility means lowering myself to lift others up. That's what Jesus really did here. That's the picture that he gave us, right? I mean, he left all the splendor and the glory of heaven to hang naked on the shameful cross for our sins, and so it'd be impossible for us to go to that extreme. Like there's some people that try to do that. They, they do all this uh, self-crucifixion type stuff and they take these pilgrimages and they beat themselves with whips. Jesus is not asking for us to do that. He's asking us to die to self. Lowering myself to lift others up. And so we need to lower our view of ourselves so that we can serve others. Number four, true humility yields any rights for the sake of serving others. Did Jesus have a right not to come to this earth in the humble way he did? Of course he did. He didn't have to do that. He had every right not to do that. Did he have a right not to go to the cross? Of course he did. But he yielded all of his rights and became a bondservant for our salvation. A bond servant or a servant or a slave was really the, the, the lower, the bottom rung of the ladder. It was the worst. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came, he, when he came to rights, he had none. He didn't have a right to his own time. He didn't even have a right to his own life. Now, this doesn't mean that we as human beings now uh, go by the very desires and the whims of everybody. You know, oh, I don't like, oh, I don't like, oh, I do That doesn't, that's not humility, okay? Basically, Jesus was obedient to the Father, not to what others thought that he should be doing. Even so, we become enslaved to do what God wants us to do. Jesus told the disciples that when a slave comes in after a day of working in the field, his master doesn't serve the slave dinner. The slave has to fix dinner and serve the master. Only then is he, is he free to eat. And Jesus said of that, he concluded this by saying, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. The only right I have is the right to hell. That's the only rights that we have. That's it. That's what we deserve. Any privileges I enjoy are by God's undeserved favor. Nothing that we have in of ourselves. Number five, true humility serves others in obedience to God. Even at a great personal cost, I mean, look at, look at what it says here in the scripture. Here's Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death at the cross. What a great example for us to see of what true humility looks like. The cross was painful beyond description for Jesus, not just because of the physical pain, but because he who was totally without sin endured for us the wrath of God by becoming sin for us. Every evil thing that we have done and ever have done or will do was placed upon Jesus Christ and he who knew no sin became sin for us and he endured that wrath, the wrath that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve. Christ took that upon himself. And so any personal cost we have to bear in serving Christ is really nothing by way of comparison, even if it means laying down our lives because he endured the ultimate sacrifice, right? The wrath of God. John Calvin had this to say about this text. Since then, the son of God descended from so great a height. How unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.